0: is the bloody disgusting podcast network i'll swallow your soul Come get some. Oils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in from Los Angeles, California. Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more with your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio.
1: Hello, I'm Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 286. This time around, you're joined by extraordinary singer songs. Songwriter, musician, author, artist, and all round creative force, Brandon Boyd. At time of release, his new solo album, Echoes and Cocoons, is due out in the spring, as well as his multi platinum and Grammy nominated band, Incubus, returning to stages in March. Brandon lets you in to the world of lucid dreaming and controlling nightmares with his new single, Pocket Knife. Hear about his love of horror films and growing up among the shelves of video stores and classics like The Shining. We talk haunted venues, touring with Buckethead, his Evil Dead obsession, interest in the occult, and how it seeped into his own artwork, Ghani's horror movie posters, and so much more. Episode 286 with Brandon Boyd will swallow your soul.
2: Trouble comes tonight, never apart tonight.
1: doing brandon Doing well how are you guys doing awesome man yeah, thanks for taking doing the doing time myself. to do this with us we really appreciate it yeah
2: my pleasure thanks for having me the boo crew i like that <laughs> <laughs> thank you
1: we've been around incubus and and your music for a long long time um my right name on. is yeah. trevor this is my wife lauren hello and then we got leo out there nice hey, brandon.
2: nice to meet all you guys i like that painting behind you
1: oh thank you that's an insane painting that's um queen elizabeth the first and her personal occultist john d he's performing a, a ritual for her in her court mm. it was an actual event that happened this is a crazy stuff like he he was this dude who came up with the um, angelic language oh apparently if you even write the symbols to this day crazy stuff happens personal advisor to the queen through uh,
2: occult means. He's got a great, Has somebody made a movie about that. That sounds like something I would watch.
1: Not yet, which is kind of crazy because he, mm. yeah, he's got a really rich backstory.
3: And then recently they did an x-ray of this painting and then they found a bunch of like skulls surrounding him that they eventually covered up. So there's like a whole story as to why, the artist put skulls all around him and then decided to cover it up
2: yeah it's pretty Oh, interesting, so it's like it was like a previous layer that got painted over yeah, yeah. that stuff is fascinating to me there's as someone who I, i've been painting my whole life and you'll be painting and painting think you're heading in a direction and like something will be almost fully formed and then something happens and you're like no nope, and you start going over it and so most paintings have multiple layers
1: oh that's interesting What's
0: your favorite medium to paint? Is it acrylic or oil? What do you paint?
2: Uh, I mostly use uh, acrylic. That's kind of what I learned with uh, I just recently, like as of like a month ago, started experimenting with oil paints. I've been messing with like oil pastels for the last few years, but I don't have much of an education in oil paints of any kind. So I'm just kind of in the experimental phase, but there's that. And then I also love um, watercolor. It's a deeply challenging medium and it's one that's really hard to kind of master so i find myself trying to do like figurative paintings in watercolor and it's it's almost impossible but it, it makes it that much more fun when you're like kind of faced with that level of a challenge
0: that's cool yeah it's funny it's like watercolor will set in five minutes and you're kind of screwed but oil will take a year to dry and yeah you exactly can change <laughs> it swap it up whatever but i'll give yeah. you one quick recommendation uh check out oil uh, sorry check out walnut oil as a medium to paint
2: Mm, I've heard about this. Yeah.
0: It's it's clean. You don't have to use solvent and um, it won't yellow your, your oil paintings.
2: That's good. I wonder if it's less toxic too. It is. That's good. Wow. There's like a dog storm happening in my house. Can you guys hear that? <laughs>
1: barely, barely. It's cool though. It's totally cool. Someone rang my doorbell. <laughs> I'll kick it off with an introduction. We've been recording this time too, but uh, joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy studio is an astounding creative force whose influence has been omnipresent in music and art. Through his work in the Grammy-nominated and Billboard award-winning band Incubus, he pushed the sound of modern rock to new expanses in an absolutely thrilling and unique way, saturating power with poetry, bringing the music to life with rich descriptions and unforgettable melodies. The alchemy reached them multi-platinum status selling over 13 million albums worldwide with no less than 14 songs going to the top 10 alt singles charts here in the U.S. alone iconic moments like Drive, Wish You Were Here, Stellar and so many more he's an accomplished visual artist and painter of which he has published several much sought after books that serve as tomes to creativity he has toured his art in many group and solo exhibits all over the world and has empowered it with awareness and activism his brand new solo album is called Echoes and Cocoon's due out in spring of 2022 the first single pocket knife is out now we are honored to welcome the incomparable brandon boyd yeah. oh,
2: wow. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what an introduction man thank you <laughs> i appreciate
1: that <laughs> well dude thank you so much again for taking the time to hang with us and congrats yeah. on this next new adventure thank you on this new song which serves as the gateway to echoes and cocoons we experienced that Phenomenal cinema that continues to imbue your recorded output. And it is through cinema that we'd love to begin. Uh, mm. What is one of your earliest memories of experiencing the power of film?
2: Well, I love this question. You know, I grew up here in Los Angeles, but I grew up kind of like in a more rural part of LA in the Santa Monica Mountains. And um, we had no television reception and um, no cable, but we had a TV and we had a VCR. And uh, we were allowed a weekly ritual of renting a movie or two. So I didn't grow up on like television per se, like TV shows. When I saw TV shows, it was at friends' houses or in, you know, like a shop or something that had a TV on it. What we had in my house were movies, almost exclusively movies. So I there's quite a few that were like my original highly influential films you know the ones that kind of like if i was heading in a certain direction they knocked me off in another direction one of them is the shining i remember seeing that way too young and it absolutely fucking destroyed me (laughs) like i was terrified to walk down hallways you know what i mean like i was looking over my shoulder and peeking into dark rooms expecting there to be You know, like people dressed as furries performing (laughs) fellatio on uh, bartenders and things. I don't know. I was constantly just afraid. That movie really messed me up. And then I remember seeing it again in my 20s and being struck that it was still disturbing. But then I started to hone in on the acting and the the shots and the, the general sort of filmmaking of it. And then I watched it again in my 30s. And I've watched it again now in my 40s. And it's become one of my favorite films because of the kind of impact that it had. I've seen it now at like four different iterations of my, of my life. Yeah. And so I, I kind of like roughly speaking the halfway point of my life, I'm blown away by this film. Another one was um, Rosemary's baby. That one really disturbed me from a young age, but then saw it again as a young adult. And then as a someone in my thirties and then now like in my forties, it's like, we just don't, they don't make, films like this anymore there's so much sort of um i still love horror films sci-fi films but very rarely do you get ones that kind of haunt you in the ways that films from that era do you know they stick with you not because of um, something that jumps out at you or something though that's fun and everything but it's more like the psychology inherent in the plot and uh, the deeper levels of poetry that was speaking through the filmmaking so That's a good place to start. Yeah, (laughs) very
1: well answered. So would you say, are are there any films that have come out in more recent years that you think have, have kind of been able to capture that essence, at least in part Mm. a little bit, something that stuck with you?
2: For sure. Yeah. Um, I remember when I saw, I haven't seen this film I'm about to mention in a couple of years, so I'd like to watch it again because I remember it did have an impact on me, but the others. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. That one Nicole Kidman. um,
2: yeah Yeah. i loved the kind of uh the the dreamy sequence it was able to kind of portray with like the continual fog and the continual darkness and the kind of the stress of the unknowing like why are they there it's like they're living on an island and where is everybody in this whole thing and it goes into a uh, you know borderline gratuitous twist at the end which i found fun at the moment i'm not sure how well it holds up now but i'll i'll get back to you on that uh another one even more recently that there were two that really had quite an impact on me it was uh, ari aster's two films uh hereditary and um midsommar yeah did you guys see those oh yeah. Oh, Um, yeah brilliant hereditary like i left it kind of disturbed but also kind of blown away that that ari aster and uh that he had made the decisions that he made. There's this one sort of gripe I've always had with horror films in that they're usually some kind of not so subtly veiled Catholic propaganda, which is fine because it like, you know, where we've grown up in a Judeo-Christian society, it's like there are certain psychological precepts that are set in stone in our culture. That's fine. But something that, I'd always wanted to happen because I really wanted to see the the bad guy win. I really wanted to see the demon persevere. Let's see what, let's, let's see what happens with a little bit more sympathy for the devil. Right. And that's, so that's one thing about uh, Rosemary's baby that I always loved was like, Oh wow. They didn't like wrap this back around. Right. And you know, like have it be like, yay, like everything's fine now. It was like, Oh shit, she's going to be Satan baby's mom. You know? And I, I always, I always loved that about that film. And so Ari Aster comes along, and oh shit, the demons win. And it's an interesting, um, once again, psychological take on human beings because we are we're so fallible psychologically and spiritually speaking, and we so so often, and it doesn't get talked about as much, but so often the demons of our lives, you know, the sort of devil on your shoulder, so to speak kind of wins a lot of the time but in films and storytelling we want to kind of wrap it around to be a happy ending and that's not really always the case and so it's interesting and it's courageous from a filmmaking perspective as far as i'm concerned to have show a film where it's like the demon on your shoulder in this case the woman doesn't she like behead herself and hereditary at the end yeah yeah it's like wow i really didn't see that coming <laughs> so, to, to walk away from a film be truly surprised especially now um with so much kind of like pandering that happens in the marketplace it, it, it was refreshing so did you guys like those films oh yeah obsessed
1: yeah. and again it was one of those things where after seeing it in the theater. Just walking out, really not knowing how to process it, which right. isn't isn't something that's very frequent, as you said, with kind of horror films of this day and age. And, and they stick with you and you revisit it in your head and you think six yeah. months later, you like it even more than the first time you saw it, you know? Right, right.
3: Is there any horror TV shows that have impacted you?
2: Mm, that's a good question you know there's <laughs> she's going to be mad at me that I'm about to tell you this but my girlfriend of the last 4 years or so she likes the horror genre uh theoretically but <laughs> she herself can't really tolerate very much of it so i have to like sneak off <laughs> <and> watch <laughs> horror, horror and like psychological dramas and stuff uh, in different rooms and so i watch more than when i'm traveling and stuff but um gosh i can't think of, of i've watched some of the kind of the netflix ones but now their names are escaping me like so they, the haunting and, of hill house and yes thank you i liked it you know it was fun it 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 uh not as impactful but you know tv obviously is a pretty different medium and I, it, it's fun that we live in a period of time where uh something that's technically like a tv show can be more long form than essentially like you know a few hours longer than even uh a film but it's it's interesting because it it's just a different format it sits in a different place I, to me if something is like you know hour and a half to two and a half hours in one sitting it's more Im- impactful i remember it more maybe i'm just trained in like the old ways because no, i'm 45 years old i hear
1: you yeah and that's yeah. something about consuming it all at once like that for sure but Seeing thing is your, your love of the shining did you end up seeing that follow-up film doctor sleep that came out a couple years ago
2: you know i haven't seen it yet and i was just um uh, on a walk with some friends of mine around our neighborhood here and it, that film came up and um, it made, it reminded me that I need to sit down and watch that one. Is it good that my friends were recommending yeah, it? They said it was it's like surprising, pretty yeah. remarkable. Yeah. The person okay.
3: that did the haunting of Hill house did Dr. Sleep Mike yeah. Flanagan. Yeah, oh, okay. It's, yeah. It's
1: really, really, really neat what he did with that. And the, just the power of revisiting the Overlook hotel is uh, quite palpable for sure.
2: Do they film it in the same place or places? Because the over it was it was two locations apparently where they did the original. Apparently, they
1: like completely recreated the set from scratch. Yeah, but to a oh, big, wow. ridiculous amount of detail, like they had access to the original blueprints and you know wow. went over all those crazy design uh, you know conspiracy theories and everything that went into that film. They really were able to unravel it when they were
2: kind of reconstructing it. There was a documentary, right? Yeah, I was just going to mention that I'm forgetting what it's called. Isn't it like room two three seven or something like that? Like it, it's named after the room. Yeah. But I watched that doc and I found it interesting. And some of it I could wrap my head around, but then some of it was reaching. It was like really reaching, yeah. like really. <laughs> <laughs> we can't ask the guy, so are we? We're just kind of we're we're right. Like, yeah. <laughs> In what
1: ways would you say that uh, the music of film has permeated your melodic choices?
2: Mm. I mean, it, without a doubt, has had a pretty profound effect. It's really interesting because I just started getting into um, being like uh, helping to fund films. Um, I have two under my belt now um, as an executive producer on a really small scale. You know, these are independent films that I've been working with. But I just did uh, music supervision on a film. It's called Unidentified Objects, and it's kind of a – it hasn't come out yet, but it will. It it stars my girlfriend, Sarah Hay, and this really great actor named Matthew Jeffers, who since then, he's gotten parts on The Marvelous Miss Maisel. Am I saying that? cool. Yeah, yeah. Title correctly, as well as a kind of um, medical procedural show called – I think it's called New Amsterdam or Amsterdam, something like that. Once again, I don't watch very much like TV still i was sort of i'm still trained on films films and and cartoons (laughs) um but yeah so i i music supervised unidentified objects and i got to watch this film multiple times with no sound attached to it and got to sit there and imagine what songs would be uh the most appropriate and what would help lift these scenes and so they had someone who was doing score um, it was, I think, the brother of the director who did the score, which is super cool. But securing licensing for songs was a really interesting and fun process. And it, it's the, the films aren't the same by a long shot without the sounds that are attached to them. And so I, I could probably pretty safely say that I wouldn't be the, the music maker or the artist that I am today if it weren't for those the score the music score but also the songs that were licensed for the films that i grew up loving and most of it i think the best ones you kind of they're almost invisible Mm. you know they just accompany the scenes and in ways that they feel kind of inseparable once again going back to the shining some of the score and some of the music choices in that film are little strokes of pure genius you know like the the disparate little piano strikes when he's in the hallway with his um with his big wheel and the way the camera sits behind him and then there's like a i think it's a it's a timpani that somebody who was performing the music was hitting and then bending the timpani so it's like a bow thing that shit is you pair that with the right imagery you can literally fuck up a nine-year-old kid me yeah you can fuck up his life for like 10 years until he watches it again and understands it for the fact that it's actually a movie it's, right. it's fiction as a kid though you're like all those things the sounds the imagery the story it was just, I, I was doing this like trying to cover my ears and my eyes and what a power to wield you know pretty fantastic the boo crew will be right back
0: It's, it's time, time to speak of unspoken things. To speak of, of unspoken, unspoken things. Of unspoken things. Elizabeth Taylor, Mia Farrow, more haunted than in Rosemary's Baby. Robert Mitchum. Each of them wears a halo of sin. In secret ceremony. Their ceremony was the secret. Their lives were the sin. Secret ceremony. There's something bizarre about it. Twisted. Fascinating. Elizabeth Taylor, Mia Farrow. Mm. Robert Mitchum. Out of their secret ceremony comes the strangest strangeness you've ever experienced. From Universal in Technicolor, suggested for mature audiences. It's time to speak of unspoken things. Secret Ceremony.
1: go off on a semi-related tangent for a sec here back in 2013 you curated an exhibit at ernie wolf called the Mm -hmm. horror the horror celebrating that unbelievable kind of these hand-painted west african horror movie posters what was Mm -hmm. your pathway to discovering these things
2: um i ernie wolf is such a great dude and his uh his gallery in west los angeles is. It's so much fun, and his collection, as you know, of Ghanaese movie poster art is truly phenomenal. Like he needs to have like a proper museum retrospective because he has, um, without exaggerating, probably ten thousand potato sacks with paintings on them of movies. Like he has thousands of them, and they're all like I, I haven't spoken to him recently, but last time I was at his. Studio, he like opened up a storage closet, and it was like stuff. It was like my room with books. Like if you move one wrong, they all come tumbling yeah. down. <laughs> and you kind of thing. And uh, he, we became friends through a mutual friend of mine named Bryn Moser, who um, is also a, he's a documentary filmmaker, and uh, we just we went on a fishing trip with him, and. Uh, ernie used to like hunt in africa and so he's like a hardcore like catch your own food guy which has always been fascinating to me um i don't love taking animals lives uh, to eat them but like i feel like if you're going to eat animals flesh you should probably have the experience once of like this is what it takes to you know get from there to here kind of a thing so as a result, uh, I, I, I don't eat much animal flesh because it's pretty intense. But we went on this fishing trip and we just became friends and didn't get one bite on the trip, but we saw some beautiful spinner dolphins and whales and it was up in Monterey. Yeah, and we just stayed friends over the years, went to multiple dinners at his studio there. And then I think he um, appreciated my appreciation of his collection. So I asked him at one point, if he had any um, posters of the evil dead or army of darkness, which were like those three films, two evil deads. And then army of darkness were like, I was obsessed with them as a kid. I found them so ridiculous and funny and gross. And it was just everything I wanted. And I still watch them today. And I like laugh uproariously and people don't, my friends don't really understand why I like them so much, but then I meet other Sam Raimi fans who were like, oh yeah, those are like master strokes, you know? Um, So he had them. He had an army of darkness that was painted by a Ghanaese artist. And he had uh, an evil dead Two, which for some reason has a werewolf holding a severed head and a werewolf holding a knife.
1: That's the beauty of these, these posters, right? (laughs) They just went crazy. They're so
2: random. They're so random. And uh, so he, then he asked if I would curate a, a Halloween show, which I enthusiastically agreed to and it was it was really really fun to be able to do that um so yeah he, ernie world is collection his collection is pretty phenomenal
1: that's amazing yeah i saw the et there's an et one and the, their poster of et is et with michael jackson and E.T.'s like his fingers pointing in the sky and he's touching sure. a guy's face that's got a face hugger from Alien on it. <laughs> like it's so or there's a Miss Doubtfire poster that currently goes there's a Mrs. Doubtfire poster that goes viral every once in a while. That's Mrs. Doubtfire, but she's got a broom and she's jamming it through a dude's eye socket. Well <laughs> <laughs> it's just nuts! Like apparently they would it's like amazing. roll through West Africa with like a mobile studio with like a generator, a VHS mm. player, and a television. Show the artist the movie and tell them they could do whatever they wanted to. to kind of yeah. attract people to see the movie. They yeah. didn't have posters there.
2: They're essentially movie clubs that they have, and they have a, a little TV with a little VHS or a beta player. And they get the movies like really late, apparently, For I I guess for obvious reasons, but their enthusiasm for them is palpable, you know, especially the artists. And there are these really popular things, these movie clubs. And that's essentially what Ernie has been cataloging all these years. These great movie clubs and the artists that paint the posters to advertise them.
3: Have you gone to the Mystic Museum to see their Evil Dead exhibit?
2: No. What is this? You're... uh, you're switching me on right now what are we talking about here
3: so cool it is like all the screen use props like there's where is it it's in burbank
1: yeah it's on magnolia in burbank yeah
2: it's called the mystic museum
3: yeah Yeah. it's incredible
1: yeah Yeah. they just opened that show i think like a month ago yeah Yeah. it's an art gallery and then they have the you know rotating galleries in inside and, and their current one is evil dead and it was yeah basically someone at ghost house pictures unearthed a storage shed full of all the
2: stuff from the evil dead films like everything i'm looking it up right now on my phone you guys are blowing my mind i know what i'm doing this weekend (laughs) (laughs)
1: it's pretty spectacular also to see that that stuff is still intact i'm talking like prosthetic heads that you'd recognize of the girlfriends like everything boomsticks tons of necronomicons they had so many different necronomicons too what? that they made for the thing
2: it's insane And i'm looking at pictures of it here evidently i'm gonna have to dress up um, <laughs> yes you should to go maybe i'll leave the chainsaw at home but,
1: you know. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your first solo art show is back in 2008 had a bit of a paranormal slant to it uh, ectoplasm uh, what inspired yes. that
2: as i'm sure is becoming pretty self-evident based on our conversation i've a long fascination with the occult uh, the, the the idea that there is a world alongside our own or the, the idea that there is potentially a world alongside our own so that also has led me into um some of these like multiverse theories and um alternate dimensional theories I, you know everything in that regard i i, I take with a, a relative grain of salt but i love the ideas that get thrown around around these things. Some of them have more sort of scientific weight than others. I don't know what the current status is of the viability of the multiverse theory. But to me, if these, if these things are real, uh, heavy if, uh, if they're real, it would explain a lot of, quote, paranormal activity. But uh, I'm digressing a little bit. Going back to your, your question, um, I grew up in a household uh, that was very supportive of creativity. So I, you know, I I suppose I had permission to let my imagination wander as a kid. And, um, my grandfather, my, my mom's dad was just a library of ghost stories and stuff that he'd heard stuff that had happened to him and his family. And it was just a, a, a hot topic of conversation from as long as I can remember. And, um, I, just became fascinated with the idea that there could potentially be something alongside our our physical tangible world so it uh in no small way has had a pretty significant effect on my imagination so all that being said there was a really great exhibit at the met in new york um where they basically had a really really extensively curated collection of what was called spirit photography Mm -hmm. from uh the earliest days of uh photography like when the 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 technology of capturing light in a box you know first came very quickly on the heels of it was uh were people who um i think were in the right place at the right time and, and ready and willing to exploit some of the um mass grieving that was going on as a result of world war one so um these photographers paired up with like spiritual mediums and they um uh, people would pay them to do seances and they would produce uh what they called evidence of the spirit world through photography and uh, that's called spirit photography so they would capture with long exposures you know everyone sitting around at a seance at a table and i apologize if you guys are already fully aware of this i'm telling you things you already know but they would have pictures of their lost loved ones and they would like really quick so it was like a blurry outline of someone that they knew while they had their eyes closed in the thing and there was a long exposure picture and then they would give them to them and be like look you're your son is fine. He he's in heaven and he came down to visit you. And then it got really elaborate with some of the mediums who would produce what they called spirit matter or ectoplasm. They would produce it from their mouths and from their ears and from their genitals and all these wild things. And most of it was probably a ruse, but who knows? I mean, there, I guess it in a in an infinite universe, there is infinite possibility, maybe 0.1%. Of these mediums was like the real deal and they were in some kind of contact with another world who's to say anyway all that being said i was fascinated with it still am and so that first series of paintings that i showed this was essentially um me expressing my fascination with spirit matter or ectoplasm. I think the first time I heard the term ectoplasm was from ghostbusters. Yeah.
1: They got too, <laughs> but yeah, that's, yeah. it's so cool when you look at all those old photography, I know exactly what you're talking about, all the emitting things from yeah. mouths and stuff. So how was that part done when they would, you know, have that, was that still double exposure and, and things like that, how they would do that?
2: It was a lot of it was really clever, sleight of hand. Some of the materials have been, Uh, analyzed historically and most of it was like really fine muslin like really fine cloth materials that were mixed with like pig's blood and interesting you know there's any number of ways that they would go about doing things but these are darkened rooms and these are highly um, impressionable people who are grieving and desperate to have some kind of contact you know so it's one part like really kind of callous exploitation and one part a high level of creativity and uh, one part desperately hopeful it's like all these things it was like this crazy cocktail of of um ideas that kind of all converged at one point there's a beautiful book that the met put out called a perfect medium you can see a lot of the photography and stuff that's in it it's if anyone is like interested in uh, historical uh, occult phenomena especially in like the americas it's a really cool book the perfect medium
3: have you ever played a haunted venue i'm sure you must have and was it crazy?
2: Yeah. And yeah. any experiences that you've had? We did. I mean, there's been quite a few. Um, a lot of the venues that we've played historically are, are like old. Some of them are really old. I mean, we played like uh, the first time we played in Prague. The venue we played at was in a mall. But the mall itself and the especially the area around the venue used to be a prison. And so the dressing rooms were still literally like holding cells Wow! Wow. and the vibe in those place in that place in particular was really strange it was really really weird like a little too old you know It had like old stuff attached to it the one that's that comes to mind the most prevalently though is we were on tour with um the band primus in 1999 it was at the very end of the year in 1999 there was another Artist that was on the tour as well. His name is Buckethead. Do you guys know Buckethead? (laughs)
1: I'm obsessed with
2: Buckethead. Buckethead. That's so funny. Yeah. (laughs) He was doing the whole like nunchuck solo and guitar solo and everything. Yeah. Um, But we did this place called the Eagle Ballroom, which is in, where was Jeffrey Dahmer from?
0: Wisconsin, wasn't it?
2: Wisconsin. Thank you. So the Eagle Ballroom in Wisconsin happens to be directly across the street. And would literally, you could throw a rock at it from uh, apparently the hotel or the building or something where Dahmer would take his victims. And uh, so there was that. But then the building itself, the Eagle Ballroom, was originally built as a meeting place for Nazi sympathizers. So it has this really weird history, but it's, it's a venue that looks, it actually is terribly similar to um, the Palladium here in Los Angeles. But what's unique about the Eagle Ballroom is it has these like lower levels, almost like catacombs, and they're abandoned. And we played there with Primus then, but we've played there even more recently. And you can kind of sneak your way down into these like abandoned catacombs. And at one point, there was like an athletic club. So there's like an abandoned swimming pool with rotted water in it. And flickering fluorescent lights it looks like a horror film set it looks like something out of a modern horror film and i don't think that they're doing it purposefully it's just like this neglected piece of real estate but we um it was so weird down there that none of us in the band wanted to like explore alone and we're like big boys you know we're like nope no thank you But at one point we were down there and Buckethead with the mask and the bucket on his head, just like appeared in one of the doorways. Hey guys, you know, (laughs) (laughs) at least screamed like banshees. Um, Yeah. He can be scary when he wants to
1: be. (laughs) Oh fuck. I can imagine. I can imagine. Oh my God. Do you, do you, do you have any other Buckethead stories from that tour? (laughs)
2: Uh, probably more than you have time for i just i'll never forget um walking by his dressing room at one point and he was warming up for his set and you guys know those little casio keyboards from the 80s like the where,
1: sk1 where it sample things yeah. and stuff yeah yeah the, yeah, yeah, the one of those ones.
2: little it's like a toy thing but it has a random generator on it okay you, you hit a random generator button it just goes does a random generator it generates random keys and he would hit the random generator and warm up to it oh on his God. guitar. So he would listen and then. Oh, oh and I remember walking by and being like, talent you know. <laughs> i'm gonna go drink tea or something i guess you know like what do you do with all oh that my talent? god that's
1: amazing yeah. that's great that's great so i i guess it brings us full circle brings us to the world of warding off nightmares and and dreaming mm. so tell us the story about
2: pocket knife mm, yeah that is a, a, a nice segue you know during the first days of lockdown i desperately wanted to record music with you know our band incubus and um i think that probably half of us thought that's what we would do you know we had just we put out a record in april which probably wasn't the best we put out an ep in april of 2020 thinking that the thing would blow over in like a month two months tops you know here we are two years later and uh we're still unawares as to you know what how long we're going to be in the situation. But anyway, um, making a record with Incubus just wasn't going to be a thing because everyone's priorities became really like clear and cut and dry. And there was that period of time when everyone was just sort of afraid, you know, it was like, don't get together with anybody. And, um, two of the guys in the band have kids and, you know, it was just like this, it was a thing. So, but when music wants to like arrive, I've learned and there's was with art to art music when it wants to arrive, it just shows up unannounced. It's not like, Hey, can I come uh, (laughs) hang out with you? It's just like, you'll be driving, you'll be, you know, taking a shit, you'll be mowing your lawn and all of a sudden there's a song that just like rushes to the fore. And if what I found out is if you're a, a kind and welcoming host to muse, you put everything down, You pull over, you know, you turn off the lawnmower and you let her in. And so that's what was going on. It was just, there was music just sort of flooding through me. And um, I ended up connecting with uh, this really great producer songwriter named John Congleton, and he and I had never worked together before. So um, we just started kind of like sending musical ideas back and forth together just as an experiment. And the first couple of things that we wrote together were exciting and different than anything that I've done before. And um, I can't speak for him, but I hope it was different and unique for him as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just remember <clears throat> hearing the, the kind of bass chord that is, there's like a sliding bass chord that is kind of the riff of Pocket Knife. And it was so beautiful and so kind of dreamy sounding to me. And so there was a, a poem that I had had I'd written a couple of years ago. A handful of years ago, at this point, and it just sort of—it had been living somewhere in my mind, kind of in the background for a, quite a long time. And I figured it would always be just sort of a desperate, unplaced poem. And it just kind of by itself, it just slid right into the baseline that he sent me, and then a melody was just right there with it. And so it was one of those songs that like already existed in a way, you know, it like existed in the ether somewhere. And then just the right circumstances hadn't come to the fore yet, but then they did being in lockdown with nothing else to do, but like paint and write music just sort of arrived. But the, um, I'm sorry. I'm talking so much. I'm freshly no, caffeinated. No, love it. No, um, great. <laughs> but then, uh, so the, the, the subject matter of the song, obviously being about dream time and some learning how to have some agency over dream time and, it, it occurred to me after the song was sort of nearing completion that we were in a, and we are in a collective dream of sorts, especially with this, with this situation with COVID, you know, it's like we're in a, a collectively experienced uh, bad dream and a darkened space. So I suppose that what the song is maybe pointing at is offering Advice or some type of like a totem, and in this case, like a pocket knife, an old pocket knife that I had had to like a person who is also experiencing the bad dream. And so it's like use hold this as you fall asleep, and then wake up in your dream still holding this thing, but then use it to make to change something, change something in your scenario that you don't like. So I'm I'm pretty explicit in the lyric where I'm saying use it to like cut a window out of the dark and let light in and change your situation there. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. And is that is that like a legitimate experience that you've had with your dream self?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I um, my I used to have terrible dreams when I was a child, and um, up until the point when I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I was young enough that I was just still in that highly impressionable stage. When my mom, uh, really just without any kind of like pomp or circumstance or around it she just said oh honey you're having bad dreams so we'll just do this next time you are in your bad dream just look at your hands and then open and close your hands and if you can do that then you can have control over your dreams and if you don't want to have bad dreams anymore you don't have to and i was like oh thanks So, like literally that night i'll never forget this but i remember the dream too um it was like a witch or something some type of a Scenario where there were people in like dark robes coming towards me or something, and the sky was going gray, and it was like this foreboding feeling. I must have been like six years old, seven years old, or something. And it occurred to me in the dream that, oh, and I looked down at my hands and then I opened and closed them, and I was like, I'm doing this. Whoa, I'm dreaming. I'm doing this. And I looked up at the things, whatever they were that were pursuing me, and I was like, no. And they all just went poof, poof, poof poofed away, and I've literally never had a nightmare since. Wow, that's incredible! Wow. So uh, that that little poem that I wrote was sort of like a, I suppose, like an homage of sorts to that experience. And so that's why I'm saying, like, take this old pocket knife that I've been keeping, and now you can maybe have this experience because it was very helpful to me. So here, you know, it's like a, it's like I'm speaking to maybe a, a younger version of myself or. Someone who is in some type of distress. That's beautiful.
3: I'm gonna play devil's advocate, and I just wonder. I always think about this. Is it important to have nightmares? Like, why do we have nightmares? Like, is Mm. it something in our subconscious that we're trying to wash away? Like, I've Mm. always wondered that.
2: What do you think? I actually, I I really like that point of view because I I am someone that believes that we. That a, a a kind of a, a spectrum of experience is really really important um, to be happy all of the time or to be safe all of the time really is to sort of breed like a complacency and it and it can really um, chip away at the bigger and more revelatory parts of, of being alive of being a human being. So there's this strange old adage where it says like the the more kind of like complicated. Uh, or trying of a childhood you had the more interesting uh, an adult you become you know there's something about too much happiness constant happiness constant safety that isn't necessarily good for us so i I agree with you i think that there's something important um, and potentially uh, empowering to be gleaned from bad dreams and not only bad dreams literally but like bad dreams in a metaphoric sense as well
0: yeah, working with producer John Congleton on uh, Pocket Knife, were there any new approaches to songwriting than what you've done many times over the years with Incubus?
2: Yes, yes. Um, it was the first record that I've ever written with someone and uh, was never once in the same room with them. Uh, so we did the whole thing remotely. Uh, we would email and FaceTime And call back and forth but it was during the period of lockdown where it was like you're not in the same room with people that you don't know really well and you're not willing to so i was it was just like my girlfriend and i and our dogs and i would go and see my family but we would be outside and like spaced apart from each other because it was you know like i said early days and but uh so there was that it was a very unique period of time as you guys well know uh this is also kind of the 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 title of the record echoes and cocoons is a not so thinly veiled reference to the period of time under which it was created and echoes and cocoons is a part of a, a longer lyric in one of the songs on the record but we all kind of retreated into um our personal echo chambers which were acting like these shielded you know little gilded cages of sorts and i'm not sure that we've emerged the shiny beautiful butterflies that can happen when you emerge from the from the chrysalis but there's still time <laughs> i'm a hopeful person <laughs>
1: Well, Brandon, I wish we had three hours with you. We could go on to so many yeah. things to talk about, but you've been uh, so generous with your time. We appreciate it so much. And we can't wait for uh, the touring with Incubus next year and the, the release yeah. of this album. We are so excited. And just congratulations for everything coming up. And we can't wait to see you back out there on the road. Thank you, guys. It's nice talking to you. Awesome. Likewise, man. Yeah. Make sure you hit up that Evil Dead exhibit. I'm probably going to go this weekend. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 286. Special thanks to our guest, Brandon Boyd. At time of release, his new solo album, Echoes and Cocoons, is available this coming spring. You can grab the debut singles, Pocket Knife and Petrichor, out now. Music for this episode from Incubus and Brandon Boyd. Production tracks provided by Powerman Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at talesfromtheboocrew.com. Crew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand. And Leone d'antonio The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand. Chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The